From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Bret Hurt graduated from the Wharton School in 1999 with an MBA in high-tech entrepreneurship. He is the CEO and co-founder of Data.World. His sixth startup, Data.World, is a public benefit corporation and a certified B corporation focused on building the most meaningful, abundant, and collaborative data resource in the world. It's an amazing company. Last year in 2017, Data.World was honored on the Best for the World list by B-Lab. Brett also founded and led Bizarre Voice, which was and is the industry leader in social commerce. He founded and led Core Metrics, which was acquired by IBM in 2010, and he's also on the board of Conscious Capitalism. In 2017, he was given the Best CEO Legacy Award by the Austin Business Journal, Austin, Texas, which uh, this episode is kind of themed around in honor of Brett. There are a number of Austin references throughout. Brett is also an entrepreneur in residence at Wharton, uh, where he shares his wisdom and experience with our students. He's also a former student of mine, and I'm uh, very proud and happy to say a good friend. So now get set to listen and learn from this master entrepreneur about building a compassionate, humane, innovative organization, and having a full life. It's Brett Hurt. Hey, Brett. Hey, Stu. How are you doing? So great to hear your voice. I really, really miss uh, catching up. I want to start by just uh, giving listeners a quick overview of what you're up to now with Data.World if I'm pronouncing the title correctly. You sure are. Okay, and, and then there's so much I want to be asking you about how you personally have um, tried to enact a, a certain set of values with respect to your work and the rest of your life and how you've been seeking harmony among the different parts and what you've done there, uh, because that's, I, th- I think, a very important part of your story that people are going to learn from. Uh, but let's start with... Uh, what Data.World is, how you got into it, and what you're up to now. Yeah, sure. So uh, Data.World, gosh, I'm so passionate about it. It's, it's the most ambitious company I've ever started uh, before. I've started it with three amazing co-founders, uh, John Loyans, Matt Lessig, and Brian Jacob. Um, they were all executives at HomeAway, which got bought by Expedia recently for $3.9 billion. It was the largest outcome in Austin in the last 10 years um, until Whole Foods was bought by Amazon. Um, and 
just uh, amazing backgrounds. Uh, two of them work for me at Bizarre Voice and, mm-hmm. and uh, just, you know, some of my closest friends. I, I've known Matt Lessig ever since we went to Warden together. That's how I met mm-hmm. you, Stu. Mm-hmm. Um, you're my professor and, you know, one of my best and, you know, one of my best friends, too, I'm happy to say, you know, ever since. And, um, and Matt uh, and I made a pact at Warden that one day we'd start a company together. And here we are, you know, <laughs> it, took a, it took a while um, to As these things sometimes together, do. You know, we founded, we founded uh, Data.World two years ago. We launched Data.World on July 11th of 2016 um, out of stealth mode. And, um, you know, the mission, you got the mission right. It really is to build the most meaningful, collaborative, and abundant data resource in the world. Um, A great way to think about it for your listeners that are familiar with uh, Internet companies is there's a company named GitHub, which um, Mm -hmm. basically has brought the world's programmers together to collaborate around code, um, including open source code. And GitHub's now used by 20 million programmers all over the world. It's worth over $2 billion. It's um, a phenomenal um, company, a phenomenal community. We have grown faster than GitHub grew at uh, at their young stage. You know, we're a young company, um, and we have brought together uh, you know a huge community around all types of data sets: climate change, uh, poverty, nutrition, um, all types of government data sets, um, even controversial data sets like Russian propaganda leading up to the presidential election on Facebook. Um, and, you know, it's really our community that has uploaded these data sets and are collaborating with each other. We've also integrated with um, all these data analytics companies like Microsoft. We've integrated with Power BI. We've integrated with Google Data Studio. They launched that recently to compete with Tableau and the likes. We've integrated with Tableau. We're actually the number one data source now for Tableau. What's Tableau? Um, Tableau is a beautiful analytics package. They're a publicly traded company. I think they're worth about five or six billion um, and just used all over the place. Um, you know, Home Depot is a huge Tableau client, for example, and uses them for all types of beautiful visualizations on their data um, internally. And, uh, and then, you know, a number of other companies, we've got like 20 plus integrations at this point. Um, and we've raised a little bit over $33 million. What do those companies do, though? How, how do they uh, capture value from their integration with Data World? With Data.World, well, the, way, the way they do it is um, it's actually, it's actually the, the community that captures the value. So individual um, users of Data.World work at all different types of companies and mm-hmm. universities and um, nonprofits and foundations. Data.world, you know, data is universal. Data.world is used by people all over the world already and used by all different types of verticals. It's not just retail or, you know, financial services. It's, you know, it's foundations, nonprofits and the like. Mm. And when they access a data set on Data.world that's out in the open, or they access one in private that they're sharing inside their company or Mm -hmm. with a partner, they then can immediately visualize it in Tableau or in Power BI with Microsoft or in Google Data Studio or any number of things that we've integrated with. And so Data.World then serves as the um, you know, kind of system of record, the repository for the data, and makes it easy to connect it 
with your tool chain, you know, like R and Python are also very integrated in data.world. So it's a really, it's a really technical thing mm-hmm. that we're doing. Um, but just the kind of thing for a nerd like it, you, right, Brett? Yeah, it really is. I mean, this is like super geeky for <laughs> for my background. Like I've been programming since I was seven years old, as you know. I know. And it it's I feel like I've gotten more technical than in any other time in my life, other than when I was like twenty years old and I ran one of the largest internet games. Um, and I was you know programming it and. And, uh, and so it was, had to be deeply technical on that because I was the main architect. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, with this, with this company, I'm certainly not the main architect or even an architect at all. I'm the CEO. Um, and I've got people that program better than I ever did in my heyday. But, um, but, but, it's, but it is a deeply technical platform. But mm-hmm. what I was going to say is that our goal is to democratize the uh, use of data where very non-technical people can can use data in very very powerful ways and the thing that thing that we're solving is really important for the world because let's say that you're a young enterprising student um, at the University of Pennsylvania and Mm -hmm. you 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 get the urge to say you know what I'm gonna solve lung cancer okay well if you go graduate from UPenn you know, you'll have an amazing degree, right? And then you say, I'm going to solve lung cancer. Well, you go out there and try to find the world's data on lung cancer. It is a complete nightmare. Um, you'll, you'll be able to find a little bit of data out there in public. And then once you find the data set after hunting and pecking around on Google and uh, trying to find, you know, um, something that you can work with, you will find that it's not documented well, that you have no idea what other people have done with that data before, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. have no idea what queries they've run, how it's been joined, has anybody cleaned up this data and in some derivative Where it's data been published? And then, and then imagine... Let me, let me ask you, Brad, is yeah. there information about where it's been... Uh, where the data has been used in publications, articles, other other very forms. Very little, very little, and and so it's a it's a really really hard problem. Mm-hmm. And you know, the very first investor in Data.World was Rachel, our daughter, who's now 13 years old, and she was 11 when she invested. She was the first ever pitch for the company, and she's coming out with her book. And I know we're going to get into that. Um, she's an investor but, in Data.World. She was the very first. If you come into our office, uh, you'll see. You a had to pitch Rachel of her. Yes, and that was the hardest pitch I've ever given. <laughs> the most nervous I have ever been in my entire life pitching a business. I kid you not. No, um, Fred, you are was. kidding. I'm not kidding. Oh my I'm god, not kidding because because I was like, well, what if she doesn't like it? You know, it's my own daughter. Um, Would she tell and, you? Oh, she loved it. I mean, she so she was like, she was like, Dad. She's like. Are you telling me that if a lung cancer researcher in Brazil uploads their data set, it could connect them with someone in Austin that's also working on lung cancer, and now they could work together to solve lung cancer? She's like, I want to put my money in. Can I invest right now? And I took a photo of that moment when she pulled money out and was handing it to me. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll provide you with that photo if I you need want to provide it to your listeners. Yes, yes. Um, but it's really fun, and it's, <laughs> it's in a framed photo with gold, you know, this gold lettering that says our first investor. And that was the first ever investor pitch. That's that was incredible. The first ever money in the company. 
But but you've got thirty three million since. Yeah, got a little bit more than you know the the several hundred bucks that she put in. Um, but you know she she was eleven, like she hasn't built up her wealth yet. But she was um, she was impassioned by the concept, and, and as you were explaining, it, data dot world allows people. So we've got that enterprising young student from Penn who wants to solve lung cancer, and he's now able to do what that data world yeah, so, data so, dot world so provides. Now they come to data dot world and they can see all the data sets on lung cancer and be able to drill into it and see like how it's documented and what other people have done with that data and see how it's joined with US census data and environmental data and all of these things and and where it's going and and there's this this uh, pretty amazing white paper that we came out with recently on linked data is we're going to be able to connect the data automatically, and that is going to blow people's minds. And well, give, me, give me an it, example of what you mean by that. Yeah, so so like uh, you know where the platform's going is you'll be able to upload a data set that has zip codes, for example. Mm-hmm. And data.world will actually say, hey, Stu, it looks like you uploaded a data set where column C1 is a zip code field. Is that right? And you say, yes, that is right. Wait, is this an algorithm or is this Matt talking to me? Well, no, this is. <laughs> <laughs> and so and then and then it'll say, um, you know, would you like to connect that data, uh-huh. your data to the U.S. Census so you can pull in demographic information? And oh, wow. would you like to connect it to this and that? And so it'll make the world much smaller because you'll be able to automatically connect to the world's data. And, and there's this problem with data. If you don't know what you don't know, you're working in your own little silo inside of a corporation or inside of your home or inside of a foundation or a nonprofit. And you have no idea how your data relates to the rest of the world. And that's true for lung cancer researcher as well, where you have no idea, like if someone in Brazil is working on the mm-hmm. same thing and you could connect with them and see correlations you know, to not spend too much time on this. Um, and, you know, cause there's a lot of topics you want to get into. Um, and I'm super passionate about it and I could easily talk about the entire time. I know. Um, what I would suggest <laughs> to your listeners is yes. that they go to data.world. Mm-hmm. It's just data.world. Mm-hmm. It's not.com. And we're one of the first dot worlds in the world. And you go to data.world and it will explain it to you super simply sign up it, you will receive an email from me as the CEO. Every single person that signs up gets my personal email address. That does not go to my assistant. It goes directly to me. Mm-hmm. And I will send you the white paper if you, if you send me an email requesting it um, so that you don't have to register for it. You just you send it straight to me. And basically what we're going to democratize access to is something called the semantic web and I'll just give you a 30-second okay. or one-minute kind of preview of that. The semantic so web. The, the entire World Wide Web is built on links, and it's built on HTML, invented by Tim Berners-Lee. And, but believe it or not, when Tim Berners-Lee came out with HTML, when he was a researcher at CERN, the entire world initially rejected it, saying, Tim, I've already got my document on the FTP site or Gopher or Usenet or all these kind of islands that exist in the internet before. And he was mm-hmm. like, you don't get it. If you, if you convert to my format, it'll connect. And now you'll be able to share with the world. And, you know, and they're like, Tim, all I got to do is send them an FTP link. Well, we know what happened with that. 
and we know how the web brought people together. Mm-hmm. Well, that hasn't happened with data, but all the protocols exist with the semantic web. And so Tim Berners-Lee has been basically begging the TED community. I go to TED every year, mm-hmm. and he's been saying, look, if you embrace linked data with the semantic web, it will allow data sets to connect, and it'll have as much of an explosion and power as documents have had with HTML. And when I met Tim Berners-Lee last year, mm-hmm. um, I told him, I was like, hey, I was the guy in the audience that actually listened to you and actually founded a company around it, and it's my sixth business, and it's a public benefit corporation, and he loved it so much, he put one of our OWL stickers on his laptop <laughs> and you know, very cool. It's just like, you know, really enthusiastic about it. And so, wow, that must have been a thrill. You will describe that, but democratizing access to that is going to create an unbelievable amount of connection in the world between what everybody is saying is the new oil, which is kind of a crude analogy, no pun intended, Uh um, (laughs) because, you know, everybody's saying like, uh, you know, the, and, and, and by the way, they're right. I mean, the, the same world, is nothing but a map of data. We are always performing behaviors, and if you understand how to crack the code on what's happening in the world, then you could be the most successful hedge fund in the world, and that, in fact, is why hedge funds are so data-driven, and this is kind of my warden guy coming out here. But the the point is is that um, if you can really understand what's happening in the world, if you can really understand that aerosol increase in a certain area is mm-hmm. leading to an increase in lung cancer, then you can actually solve problems. Um, and that's why trading firms are built around data so, sets. So data.world um, is, yeah. enables uh, researchers or just inquiring minds to to make those kinds of connections that don't exist within the circumscribed uh, research domain or world that, that an individual that group or team and, is And by the is, way, that's true inside sorry. companies, too. You'd be shocked. Inside companies, data is largely siloed mm-hmm. in between offices, sure. no, I'm not um, in between divisions, mm-hmm. and, they, and, and you know, companies... Um, so data.world is an attempt to is, is, is a vehicle for, for breaking through those, those silos, those bring barriers. Bring it together in a company bring it together in the world, um, allow the world to solve the biggest problems. I don't know if, you know, you, you feel this way, but I feel like our problems are getting pretty bad. We've got, you know, massive problem with climate change. And, you know, just last year we had the largest hurricanes, we had the largest wildfires, and now we've got the largest, you know, ice freeze on the East Coast. And, you know, this is the type of technology that has to be invented mm-hmm. to help solve those problems. And that's why I feel so mission-driven as an entrepreneur Let's, and why we set it up as a public benefit corporation. So what does that mean? What does that mean so, for yeah, listeners so who aren't familiar with Sure. So, um, you know, as you know, I served on the board of directors of Conscious Capitalism for, for a while and served alongside John Mackey, who's one of our in, investors in Data.World and founder of Whole Foods and CEO. And, um, you know, the, the, the C corporation's been a lot around for a long time, and there are many C corporations who are extremely soulful. Um, whole Foods is one of them. They have the whole, you know, found, the whole Planet Foundation, a bunch of other things. Um, and they, they do a lot of good for the world. Um, but, you know, the, the question was, like, 
what is the next evolution of business? And one of the things that I think you know about me is I'm always trying to evolve. I'm always saying, where, where's the next, where's the future? You know, what, what, where's the puck going? And mm-hmm. I've been able to predict some pretty big trends so far. And my prediction on corporate governance is it's going to be, you know, the company's future are going to be more like public goods. Um, and actually, mm-hmm. if you look at the original companies in the U.S., they were more like public works projects. Mm-hmm. And so a B corporation or a public benefit corporation, the foundation of it legally is the C corp. So it has all the advantages of C corp, but it has the additional benefits of putting the mission at the center of the company, allowing you to regularly and requiring you to regularly report on how you're fulfilling that public mission mm. Um requiring you as certified B Corp to measure diversity inside your company, not just give it lip service, to measure things like, are you paying men and women, you know, the same? Um, And we just got certified, by the way, um, by another company, which measures that Hmm. um, called Same same pay and you'll see, or you'll see, uh, you'll see that. Congratulations. That's awesome. Pretty soon. Yeah. That's kind of late breaking. It hasn't been, uh, announced yet, but I'm but fine with announcing it here. You just did. <laughs> I did. I just did. And so, um, so it, 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 you know, I look at it as like, this is where the next generation of corporate governance is going. And I want to be on that curve. Um, and so, you know, the, the naysayers of the B Corp movement, what they'll say is like, well, why do you need to do that? You can be a soulful C corporation. It's like, mm-hmm. and you know what I say to them? I say, why would I not do it? All right. Yeah. Welcome back, everybody. Brett, you know why I'm playing that music? I do. We need to talk about that. <laughs> why? So Stevie Ray Vaughan was um, an Austin legend. Yes. And if your listeners haven't seen documentaries of him playing, he was like Jimi Hendrix. Um, it's debatable who was better, but they were both phenomenal. And uh, one of my huge regrets growing up in Austin is that I never saw him play live. I never, mm. you know, I mean, who would have known he would have passed away so suddenly? Yes. Um, but well, he was amazing. I'm, I play his music here in his honor. And because I know you're such a fan, I remember listening to some Stevie Ray Vaughan in, in an Audi that you were driving around Austin about 10 years ago when I came to visit. And we were listening to That's that true. music really, really loud. It was awesome. We were. So, so here, here's, a, here's a bit of Stevie Ray Vaughan to bring us back to Austin and to, well, so data.world. I, you know, I'm not really interested in what the naysayers are saying. I want to find out uh, what this all means to you personally. Uh, sure. And, and how the mission of data.world fits with where you're going in your own life. So could you speak to that? Yeah, so so maybe I could, should just catch you up a little bit because it's been a while, right? Um, yes. So, you know, Bizarre Voice went public in 2012 and had a phenomenal outcome. And and then I was in this financial position where I never needed to work again. And it took me into this uh, place where, um, you know, my wife and I are Jewish and our daughter's about to get her bat mitzvah and we went to Israel and... And for the first time in 2012, and just had an amazing time. And and 
and then uh, just started going on lots of trips and, you know, for three years, like I went on all these bucket list trips, you know, that all these places I've always wanted to go, like India and New Zealand and all over the world. And, um, you know, lots of places in Europe. And, and so, so I, I kind of, you know, thought, well, now I can do, you know, quote unquote, whatever I want to do. And I went to every field trip the kids had. Um, I went to every major event, you know, it was like volunteer, you know, and, and I also started invest in startups. And now today, my wife, Deborah, and I are in 56 startups and 12 BC funds. And I've seen over 1,200 pitches of startups um, since uh, the beginning of 2013. And so that, that kind of like rewired my brain in several ways because it's very common in life, you know, that, that you're strive, strive, strive constantly. And, you know, I, I actually had this time, three years, mm-hmm. to take this breather a bit of not being a hard-driving CEO um, to say, you know, kind of wonder, you know, face that existential question of, like, what is the meaning of life? And what I found out in that journey was pretty profound. Like, I went to go study in India this practice called Vedanta, which is over 5,000-year-old Indian philosophy, and I know that people listening to this may think, gosh, that's so weird or whatever, but it's amazing. It's, you know, uh, like a lot of like really deep philosophies. It's an amazing thing and um, really gets you to do some hardcore reflection. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, started, I started to feel like um, I, I, I was too young to kind of retire and that I, at my core, was a creator, and I started to come around to this thought of, well, hold on, maybe I never did any of this for the money anyways. It was always because I like to create, and I've been doing that since I was seven years old, and like even if I ended up having no money you know, with it, like, like the, the whole point was to build something good for the world that mm-hmm. people would benefit from, and that, that was part of my DNA. And, you know, sometimes children... I actually say actually a lot of times children are wiser than adults. And uh, if you don't believe me, go go watch our TED, the TEDx talk that Rachel gave. If you just search for Rachel, her TEDx on Google, mm-hmm. um, she talked about inner beauty and self-confidence when she was 11 years old. And there's a lot more wisdom in there than most adults. And, you know, and, and, and she started to ask me, she was like, Dad, when are you going to start another business? Hmm. I'm like, well, Rachel, I'm at every field trip. I, you know, I'm investing in these companies. I'm doing these trips. Uh, yeah, yeah, Dad, that's all great. And then one day she pointed at me, and she she literally pointed at me, and she said, "When are you going to start another business?" Hmm. And it really hit me hard, and made me think. You know, she's right. Like I am a creator at my core. And, you know, your kids do not care if you're at every field trip. They just don't. Um, They care if you're there for the important moments. Mm -hmm. They care if you're there for, you know, big performance. They care if you're there when you when they really need you. Well, they want to know that they matter to you and they want to know that they matter. But, you know, at the end of the day, like the most important lesson you can teach your child is that the meaning of life is to live a life of meaning. And the the hard thing about living a life of meaning is finding what meaning is for you. Yes. And that's the hardest part because, 
Yes, Meaning is. for some people is to be a amazing professor at well, the boarding school. It's Meaning different for, for all of us. People is to be the you know the ultimate hedge fund person, mm-hmm. you know, or Wall Street person. You know, meaning for other people is to be the ultimate nonprofit CEO, like John Wood is a friend of mine, you know, the founder of A Room to Read, which is amazing. And he left Microsoft at the height of his career to go do that. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, that, that's the point. And I, at the end of the day, that's the point to, to, to live a life that is meaningful. Yeah. And so, so I've actually, this may sound completely crazy and meaningful for you. And so for and, you, it, it, it meant or means creating, but yeah, finish your thought. Yes. Yeah, so, what mean, might sound crazy? completely crazy to your listeners, but I'm actually happier now working over 70 hours a week at Days.World for the past two years than I was for three years traveling around the world doing bucket list trips mm-hmm. um, with this feeling of I never need to work again. And it's still true. I never need to work again, but it doesn't matter. That's mm-hmm. not the point. The point is to build something great for the world, do it with people I love. I absolutely love the people at Data.World. We've won our second annual Best Place to Work Award. It's a vibrant culture. You can can feel this palpable sense of we're making history together. Mm -hmm. And that's the point. And and the kids see that. And, uh, you know, Levi all the time, our son. son, he tells me all the time, you know, just just really loving things about how much he loves me and about how much he loves spending time with me. And we spend lots and lots of quality time together, even though I'm working, you know, 70 plus hours a week. How do you do that, Brett? Well, I, I'm good at compartmentalizing. Like, mm-hmm. it's really obvious to me because I spent that three years maybe, but I think that it's intuitive to any parent if they really listen to their inner voice. It's really obvious, like, when your child needs you and when your child wants you. And when uh, when Levi needs me, I just drop what I'm doing and I go deeply spend time with him. And then he gets bored of me. And then I go back to doing what I was doing before. And I'm super efficient. Like I've been working long enough as an entrepreneur where I'm hyper efficient at my task. And so, you know, working that many hours, I can get a lot done mm-hmm. in 70 plus hours a week. And, um, and so, you know, I, I just, I'm good at compartmentalizing. Like, like I just got back from a trip to Hawaii um, where Deborah and I took the kids. Um, we got back on January 4th and I, I have stopped. Well, let's put it this way. 12 years ago, I stopped putting on out of office messages um, where if you sent me an email, it said I'm on vacation. I yeah. stopped doing that yeah. 12 years ago. Yeah, I haven't because, used those in forever. Yeah, because I found that I actually enjoy vacation more if I work two hours a day mm-hmm. on vacation. Mm-hmm. I actually enjoy it more because I don't come back. No, that's been my, my method. We've talked about that. I mean, early on, you were you were a no vac- one of the early advocates of a quote unquote uh, take you know as much as you want but, as and as do whatever want. the heck you we want during your vacation. So, yeah, so you're doing policy. that at Data World now. Uh, yeah. uh, so, so, so compartmentalizing, being efficient, being able to have the flexibility yeah. uh, to be able to drop what you're doing. Not everybody has that. I mean, right? when, when when Bizarre Voice was like 800 people, yeah, um, people didn't even know if I was on vacation because I'm so responsive even on vacation. And by the way, that does not mean that I'm not going to place like, you know, we went to Queen's Bath and Kauai, you know, which is pretty treacherous hike, you know, and, and, and beautiful, like, you know, these beautiful baths, you know, that are naturally formed on 
beach, it doesn't mean I'm like checking email as I'm walking down treacherous path like an idiot. Like it, it, it Glad basically to hear that, means that like I'm on, you know, for maybe 15 minutes mm-hmm. and then I'm off for four hours mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then I'm on again for 15 minutes. <laughs> And, you know, I'm just really good at kind of compartmentalizing and well, being efficient being to able the to point switch. where it just keeps things going. So balls, balls juggling in there. Well, you were able to switch. And my right? family sees that and they don't find it offensive. I, I know well, so long as when you're there, I, mean, I think the key exactly. is to be managing those expectations with them and, to, and so that they know when you're there, when you're not. Yeah, we have very open dialogue. And, you know, by the way, the the the. Uh, Tied with the first investor, as Rachel would tell you if she was on the line right now, is Levi, um, which, you know, Rachel had to kind of twist his arm a little bit and say, you're going to really regret this if you don't invest. Because, um, you know, it's hard concept for a six-year-old uh, to yeah. with the money he parted with. He ponied but, up. Um, but he, you know, he's a very proud investor, too. And they're big fans of what I'm doing. And... Uh, and so, you know, they, they're along for the journey. And that, by mm-hmm. the way, is something I've got to give complete credit to my parents. You know, my parents were entrepreneurs from the time I was born. Mm-hmm. Um, they brought me along for the journey. They showed me that you can love what you do. And if you don't love what you do, then you shouldn't do it. And my dad mm-hmm. would kind of max out on things and move on to the next thing. And he showed me that, you know, you can, you can be a great parent and still um, be highly effective as an entrepreneur. Um, but you wanted him to do more, just like Rachel wants you to do more, it sounds I like. Did. I remember you telling me this I a did. long time ago where you thought, you know, Dad, you could have done more with what you had. I did. I'm much more ambitious than my dad. You know, unfortunately, both my parents have passed away. My mm-hmm. mom from lung cancer, if it, talk about lung cancer, it's part of the reason mm-hmm. why it's personal to me. But the... You know, my dad and I had a conversation just to replay that when I was 10 years old. He could sell his products in all the Walmarts. Walmart approached him and said, we want to sell all your products nationwide. And he turned them down. And I was 10 years old and I was crushed. And I was like, Dad, how could you do this? This is your chance to go really big. Mm -hmm. And he sat me down at a small table and he looked me in the eyes and he said, son, you may realize the value of keeping life simple one day or you may not. That's your choice. Hmm. And before he passed away, you know, we would always joke and he would say, you never did get that lesson, did you? (laughs) And I would laugh and say, well, dad, you know what my problem is? And he'd say, yep, you're just too damn ambitious. Hmm. Um, And so we'd laugh about that. Well, I will tell you that, you know, part of the reason why I lasted for three years um, in that mode um, is that I did lose both my parents. Mm. Um, you know, shortly after, well, shortly after Bizarre Voice went public, I lost my mom. I'd already lost my dad, um, you know, five years before that. And, um, and so I just, you know, I did have their voice ringing in my ears and I was like, you know, well, I'll try their lifestyle and I'll see like, you know, what it was like. And you weren't um, happy there. I remember the last time I was with you, we were at dinner at some Thai place. I think it was in Austin and you were you were like, yeah, you know, what do I do now? <laughs> kind of, uh, it didn't suit you not having well, something I think, to create. I don't create. think I said that. I think what I told you is, I told you I was doing the second best thing. Hmm. 
And you said, well, why are you doing the second best thing? Hmm. And I said, well, because the first would require me to go all in hmm. and be 70 plus hours a week. Mm-hmm. And the second best thing allows me to be at every field trip and mm-hmm. travel the world, et cetera. Well, it took my daughter to realize that I should do the first best thing. Yeah. Now, t- <laughs> now give us give us give us the pitch for for what Rachel's venture is is about because uh, we're we're starting to get to the to the end of our of our hour. Tell us what's she doing? Yeah. So so you know I found what my passion was at age seven, and that was you know I fell in love with programming. My mom learned how to program with me, and. I then programmed over 40 hours a week from age 7 to 21 and decided that my whole career would be around how technology could change the world for the better and I would be a creator. And Rachel found her passion as well at age 7. She fell in love with writing and especially with writing fantasy stories. And um, she started writing at that time and, you know, when when she was in second grade, she would write under the desk when the teacher wasn't looking. And um, she has now come out with her first book. It's called Guardians of the Forest. If you want to buy it right now, it's in limited edition, where 100% of the proceeds go to the Andy Roddick Foundation. If you buy it, the great by tennis Jan- player. Yeah. If you buy it by January 27th and you buy it at um, guardiansoftheforestbook.com. Mm-hmm. That's, that's where you buy it. And you can read all about it there. But basically, it's the story of Auburn, who's a unicorn who doesn't grow in his horn and becomes very depressed um, about that and is kind of mocked because, you know, a unicorn without a horn is just a horse and ends up just going on this long journey hmm. in a forest um, that's very magical that has these certain guardians in it. I won't give anything away. And all these amazing things happen to him as he tries to find who he is. So it's a very introspective journey. Hmm. It's beautifully illustrated by Ryan Durney, who's illustrated over 80 children's books. He's an award-winning illustrator. I mean, it's, it's literally gorgeous. Like, you know, it reminds me It's beautiful. Me of, I've seen it, folks. Guardians of the Forest. Yeah. You got to check it out. It's an inspiring story and an instructive one, and especially coming from such a young uh, author, uh, really worth uh, your time and, uh, and investment. And you're helping other people by making a purchase now, right? You are. So Andy Roddick Foundation, you know, is uh, Austin um, charity, but basically Andy Roddick, who's a famous tennis player, devoted his second half of his life to helping underserved children by creating the most amazing summer camp experience you could imagine, Mm -hmm. where you get the best teachers, you get the best chefs in Austin teaching you how to cook, you get the best tennis, you know, one of the best tennis players teaching you how to play tennis. That is so cool. It's it's like it's very angelic. It's it, you know these mm-hmm. are kids who would not have that opportunity at their age. Mm-hmm. Who and and by the way, no wealthy kid would have that opportunity either. And you know basically, uh, it's almost like this angel has plucked you up and put you in this intervention program mm-hmm. to make you an incredible person and give you an incredible experience. And I mean, it's like life changing for these kids. And so a so purchase of Guardians of the, of the Forest helps uh, to contribute to, to the Roddick Foundation and to that experience that is transforming lives. Yeah, it's guardiansoftheforestbook.com. Got it. Awesome. 
So what do you tell the young people, the many young people that you get a chance to mentor and, and speak to when they're, when they're pitching you their idea that's going to change the world and, uh, and, and, to, and to bring all kinds of value to it? How do you advise the people who are coming up? And many of the people listening to this show might be in that category. Gosh, I mean, you know, there's so many things that I advise them on. And, and I, I've actually documented a lot of advice on, on my blog. It's lucky7.io. It's lucky with the number 7.io. Mm-hmm. Um, because over the years, I found that I was reinventing the wheel over and over again. People would say, well, how do you hire the best? Like, how do you do that at Bizarre Voice? How do you have, the, you know, the number one place, you know, to work? And, and I would go on this story and tell them for an hour and then I'd realize you know what I need to write this down and I'm glad so you did and I'm do glad it every single time yeah so it's and it's all there and it's and it's, it's really wonderful and so, very accessible so, you know I mean I just wrote a, a a blog post um you know two days ago called the importance of an always be learning life and I explore the concept that a lot of successful people as well as not very successful people um, start to adopt a closed mindset. Mm-hmm. I even I even saw this happen a bit at Warden, where people thought, "Well, I've gotten into Warden now, and mm-hmm. you know, and post Warden, I don't need to learn as much." I looked at Warden as like the start of a really well, that's, that, um, that's educational what... career. Where I, you know, you know how many books I read after I graduated from Warden? I I I read over two hundred business books in the first two years. Well, we call it commencement for a reason, right? Yeah. Like when you when you're done, that's that's the beginning. Brett, before we go, I, I want to ask you, as I'm, I'm going to start asking uh, all my guests, uh, a question that may come out of the blue. I don't think so. I think it's probably something that you've thought quite a lot about, and that is about compassion, which is uh, a theme I want to try to bring into this show more because I think the world needs it. How do you strive to bring compassion to your work and life? Well, there's no easy answer to that. I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you that compassion's in my DNA because of the way I grew up. So growing up here in Texas, um, a couple of things. One, I had an incredibly loving mother, incredibly loving. I mean, mm-hmm. like she literally had superhuman strength to say, I'm going to keep everybody out of my son's life that doesn't allow him to focus on what he loves most, mm. which is programming over 40 hours a week. And literally at Thanksgiving, I would hear around the dinner table things like people saying to my mom, you're ruining that child. He does not know how to do anything else but program. He doesn't know how to mow the lawn. He doesn't know how to do anything <laughs> else. And, you know, what? how is he going to survive? And it just wasn't obvious back then. And I got, I got picked on so much at school for being a nerd, like just constantly, like people, I went to a pretty rough middle school, so people would try to beat up the nerd. Mm-hmm. And I probably got in 200 fist fights by the time I was, you know, 13. Wow. And it was, it was rough, you know. Um, and so, so I, 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 through that experience, realized that, um, you know, to really connect with people, you have to go under the surface that there's mm. a human being in there and it's not just, you know, Mr. Beefcake or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's actually a person in there that, that has, you know, fears and weaknesses and strengths and hopes and dreams and all that stuff. And because of that, I think that it shaped me to 
really not see color and not see gender and just see what's beneath. And, and part of that was, you know, growing up on bulletin board systems. I started my first bulletin board system when I was 10. That was where you would connect with people over a modem. And it was like the early days of the Internet before there was an Internet. Yes, but we've got like um, 30 seconds, so I need you to bring it home here. Yeah, so, <clears throat> so, so, I mean, that that's in my DNA. And mm-hmm. I think if you really believe in people and really bring out the best in them, then naturally you're going to be extremely compassionate to them because you you genuinely care about them. Mm-hmm. I mean, I genuinely, you know, care and love people. Mm-hmm. And so I can't imagine not being compassionate. And what's mm-hmm. happening, you know, politically and everything else is mm-hmm. the opposite of that. I know. I know. And that's that's why I'm asking this question of you. And I'll be asking it of all my guests in, in the days ahead, because I think it's something that uh, we need to hear more about and to make more a part of our lives and our, our conversation. Uh, Brett, it's been so much fun catching up with you and hearing uh, the latest in your remarkable journey. Thank you so much for being our uh, on the show and being my guest tonight. Uh, remind listeners how they can find out more about Data.World and your other work as we wrap up here. Sure. So, uh, you know, so so just to recap the links for Data.World, just go to Data.World. That's it's that simple. Got it. The name of the company and the URL is the same. For uh, my blog, you go to Lucky7.io. I have tons of uh, advice on there for entrepreneurs. You can see our portfolio as well. Awesome. Uh, startups. And then for our daughter's book, you go to guardiansoftheforestbook.com. You can see Rachel's profile there awesome. why she wrote it and a little bit about the book and some of the artwork. Thanks so much, Brett. It's been great. Really appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Brett Hurt. So much to think about in his story uh, and how he got to where he is today. One of the things that I found most striking in my conversation with Brett is the challenge I want to put before you this week, an invitation for you, to consider what it would mean for you to protect time for yourself or maybe for a loved one, perhaps a child, to do the thing that you love to do or that your child or some other loved one loves to do, just like Brett's mother did for him when he was young, and how she seemed to be really intent, perhaps ferociously so, in ensuring that the young Brett would have uh, what he needed to spend his time on his passion. What would it mean for you to be able to do that? And as you think about that, what occurs to you about what stands in the way of your being able to do that, either for yourself or for a loved one? So that's my invitation, my challenge to you for this episode. I hope you find it useful to explore that question, and I'd love to hear from you as to what comes up as you think about that challenge and what it might mean for you to put it into play in the real work of your everyday life. You can write to me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, or on Twitter, at Stu Friedman. And if you have ideas about people that you'd like to hear me speak with on this show, I would love to hear from you about that as well. So get in touch. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.